Welcome to Bar Fights with attorney and advocate Sarah Klein. Taking on issues that matter and advocating for legal, cultural, and political change everywhere in order to protect children and vulnerable adults. Joining the conversation are survivors, advocates, lawyers, media personalities, athletes, celebrities, authors, wellness aficionados, and many more. Because bringing real justice takes a team of experts who care. Now, leading the fight is your host, Sarah Klein. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Bar Fights. Today is super exciting. You're not going to believe some of the stories we're going to hear. Our guest is named Nikki Egan, and you might recognize the name. She's an award-winning journalist. She's a former People Magazine senior writer of 12 years, turned author, turned podcaster, and she's got a 30-year record of going up against the nation's most powerful people to expose wrongdoing, which, as you guys know, is just the kind of person, of woman we love on this show. It is what I aspire to do in my career also, and so there's so much we're going to learn from Nikki today. Um, Nikki was the first reporter to dig deeply into that Bill Cosby scandal back in 2005 when other reporters shied away and weren't going to go there. And when the scandal bubbled back up in 2014, she was able to quickly reconnect with those victims and sources um, that she had established and begin those exclusive stories and breaking news once again. And so we're going to start there with Cosby, but there's so many other stories and and sort of groundbreaking career moments that you've had, Nikki, along the way that I want to get into today. Um, First, I'll just welcome you to Bar Fights, Nikki. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for having me on. I'm really honored to be here. I'm so excited. So we'll start with sort of your personal, professional journey. I know careers are never a straight trajectory, um, but how does how did it all sort of pan out that you got to that place back in 2005 of digging into into that Cosby story? You mean the beginning of my career, or just sort of like that case in particular? Wherever you want to go, girl. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> We're here for it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I started on newspapers and I'll now quickly go through this in high school, um, was co-editor of my school paper, my junior, my sophomore year editor, my senior, junior year and then man, sorry, I was, I started in journalism when I was in high school, I was co-editor of my school new- newspaper, my sophomore year editor, my junior year, and then managing editor of all of our publications, my senior year. And then I went to UNC Chapel Hill and majored in journalism and um, had a double major with political science. And I was very into political journalism at first, did internships, ended up in DC after I graduated to do a program, Washington Center, Washington Center for Politics and Journalism where I interned with the Boston Globe and got to work with some of the guys who won the spotlight, you know, who were the subject of the that. spotlight movie. They were just some of the most amazing journalists I've ever met in my life. Just really ones to look up to when you're, you know, first getting into the business. Yeah. And then I went to work for States News in DC and started writing for the Philadelphia Daily News. Uh, they hired me as the Washington correspondent when I was 24, but then I transferred to Philly. My mother was dying. I wanted to be closer to my parents. They lived in Vermont. 
And I got thrown into crime. So because we had a political reporter in Philly already, they didn't need me to cover that. And, you know, I wasn't crazy about covering crime, but I liked the crime solving part of it. And I really, only because I just hate intruding on people. It is, you know, people, I've lost family members. I know what how awful grief is. I mean, to lose someone to a murder is even worse, in my opinion. Yeah. So it was always something I was not crazy about doing simply because I, I it felt very intrusive to me. But I, but, you know, I found you can do a lot of good with those stories. There were a lot of people who were grateful for the coverage. We, you know, we wrote them like they were obits when I was at the Philadelphia Daily News. So that we really wanted them to be more stories about who the person was than mm-hmm. the crime itself. And then I decided to get my master's in criminal justice from Temple University while working full time because they were offering tuition reimbursement. And I wanted to try to make sense of what I was experiencing every day when I was out on these stories. So that led me to doing more. I was always doing more investigative pieces on every beat I had, even back in college. You know, I was always trying to look beneath the surface to see what was going on. And I started digging into a series of drug facilitated sexual assaults that were going on in Philly. I mean, there was a there was a burst in them in like 2002. And it was my first encounter really with that crime. It was to me, it was really horrific the more I learned because the drugs take away a person's ability to move, to speak to even remember what happened. And there was a spike in them along the nightclubs along the Delaware river. And I was, you know, I was like 34. I was, I wasn't long ago that I was one of those women dancing the night away, you know, the nightclubs. And I was just horrified to think of what could have happened to me, let alone what was happening to a lot of people. So I did a big expose on it. Um, And these drugs, what was even worse is like these drugs, take away, you know, they're, most of them are out of your system within like eight to 12, 10 hours. So even if you wake up and go straight to the hospital, go straight to the police, the drugs are probably already out of your system. And who are the police going to believe? I mean, rape is already a crime that mm-hmm. is, has, you know, a very low rate of people going to even going to the police. And I think the yep. conviction rate is what less than 1%. Yep. So, and, and who are they going to believe you or this other person? And what if this other person is someone like Bill Cosby, America's yep. dad? Who are the police going to believe you? I mean, and they can even say if the drugs are in your system that you took them voluntarily. So it just outraged me on a level that had I never really experienced before. I'd had a boss at one point that said, look for stories that outrage you. And, and that was one of them. Of course, I never dreamed that a couple of years later, I'd be writing about Bill Cosby doing that to women. And when this story first broke in January 2005, I was... Um, assigned to it. It broke on the local news. My boss would always put me on the big stories to try to get ahead on them and everything. And my, my initial reaction was not the cause because I was a huge Cosby fan myself. I grew up watching Fat Albert and the Cosby kids on Saturday morning cartoons with my brother. I (laughs) loved the Cosby show. You know, it, it came on in the fall of 84, which is a few months after my older brother had died. And my whole family was kind of a mess and that was like this safe place to go to and and watch this show and you know Cliff and Theo were having issues like my brother and my dad had had you know it it just felt very relatable to me um and I was so I was a huge fan but you know your job as a journalist at least how it used to be is to put your personal feelings aside and just report the story and that's what I sought out to do I mean you know, just to find out both sides of it. And like, I knew who Cosby was or who I thought he was, but who was this woman accusing him? Because of course, at that point, her name wasn't being released, which they normally don't do with sexual assault victims and the media doesn't do. Although that quickly changed with this case. Because what I, what I came to find through coverage of this case is, is how much the media was to blame 
for Cosby's behavior as well, because they covered up for him for years. They enabled him for many, many years. There were many who knew what he was doing. And they just were so, he was just so powerful that no one wanted to go up against him and try to do anything about it. So anyway, I, I did find out from a source the name of the woman accusing him. And the more I found out about her, the more credible it became. Because I'm like, how did she even know him? Well, she was director of operations for the Temple women's basketball team. And Cosby is an alum of Temple, although he never actually graduated from there. He did attend, but never graduated and was a huge supporter of the women's basketball team. He used to do local Comcast commercials and he was close with Don Staley, the coach. There was a picture, he dedicated like the, the premiere in Philly of the Fat Albert movie to Don Staley. There was a picture of the two of them um, on her wall in her office. And this was Andrea's boss. Um, Andrea had been one of the top high school basketball players in Canada, like one of the top 10. And she had been recruited by 50 to 60 colleges in the U.S. and went to the University of Arizona. She dreamed of playing for the WNBA one day and even paid herself to go to tryouts, but didn't make it. So she then went to Italy for 18 months and played. And then she came back to Canada where she was from and was sort of thinking, what's next? Obviously, my NBA careers and WNBA careers are going to happen. And then Don Staley approached her about the job at Temple through a, they knew, she knew a friend of Andrea's. And so Andrea took it. And that's how she met Cosby after she'd been there about 10 months. Um, a donor, a Temple donor introduced them at a basketball game. And um, Cosby called like the next day, but he, he was like 10 years older than her own father. Andrea was in her early thirties and she was in a relationship with a woman. I mean, she wasn't interested in him romantically at all. She, she was very naive and, you know, still is to a certain extent and very trusting. And he knows that. I mean, guys like him know that they pick their prey very, very carefully. And the pattern that emerged was a similar one with a lot of the the women that Cosby did this to. And so he became her mentor. He became coaching her. And, and so, so this is, this is how it all started unfolding. And the more I found out about her, the more credible I found um, her to be. And then I found out there were tapes out there that supported what she was saying, but of course Cosby's people, and I reported on that. And then Cosby's people leaked to the media that her mother, these tapes were, her mother had taped a call with Cosby where he was offering them Andrea scholarship. Cause after she went to the police, then all of a sudden he's offering her this scholarship. And of course, I wonder how many women out there got scholarships, quote unquote, from Bill Cosby, mm-hmm. though, I don't, though I don't blame them for taking them at all. Um, but Andrea, you know, he had sexually assaulted her in his home. She had gone there for advice in January 2004 because she at that point she wanted to leave Temple and, was, and go back to Canada and become a massage therapist like her father. And she was struggling with how to tell um, Don Staley and Cosby over the past 15, 16 months had become a friend and a mentor. Mm -hmm. And, and that's the night she went to his home to talk about it. And then he asked her, she, he knew she was very stressed and said, do you want something to help you relax? And they had talked about herbal, a lot about herbal medication, because she didn't even take over the counter medication. He was, she was very into holistic therapy. And so was he supposedly. And so she thought he was giving her herbal medication and she took it. And within 20 minutes, you know, she gets to stand up. She's wobbly. Her vision's starting to blur he escorts her over to the couch and she's in and out of consciousness the next few hours while he sexually assaults her. Mm. And um, she went to confront him, but she woke up, he's standing there in his bathrobe, offers her tea and a muffin. And she's just like, what happened? I mean, here's this guy. He's been my mentor. I mean, that's what happens with a lot of victims. I'm I'm sure you can relate to this where you're just like, this, this is not who I wait. This person who has been my mentor, who was this revered, 
person who is, you know, there'd never been a whisper of scandal in Cosby's life, except this one moment when it came out that he'd had an affair with, um, with a woman and that Autumn Jackson, this girl might, might or might not be his daughter, but she was blackmailing him and he got him arrested. She got her arrested, but that happened around the same time that Cosby's only son got murdered. So there was a lot of sympathy toward him, understandably. Um, so yeah, there's this disconnect and she just like nibbled at her muffin and she left and she tried to confront him to ask him like what drug it was he gave her, what happened at one point. And he just said to her, well, you had an orgasm and she's just so horrified. She leaves. So she goes back to Canada eventually and she's having nightmares. She's losing weight. She's not wanting to spend time. She's living with her parents again while she goes back to school and she's having nightmares. She's losing weight. She won't have anything to, she doesn't want to spend time with her family, which is just, it's not like her. Her parents are really worried about her and they hear her screaming at night from the nightmares she's having. And so finally in January, 2005, she wakes up from another one of these nightmares, which was about another woman getting sexually assaulted. And it was her fault because she hadn't said anything and she calls her mom crying and she finally tells her what Cosby did to her. And that's what prompted them, uh, her to go to the police. Mm-hmm. And um, after they filed the police report um, and, and Gianna's furious, she's a mama bear, Gianna, her mother, they, she and her, she and her other daughter had met Cosby when he was there because Cosby not only groomed his victims, he groomed their families. So that, you know, so that who do you go to when you're like, you do what Andrea did. Usually if you have a good relationship with your mom, you go to a parent to do, or to disclose to. And if you don't get a good response from a parent, then you shut down. And that actually happened to another one of the Cosby victims who went to try to tell her, her mother about it. She's the other one that testified at the first trial and her mother kind of didn't want to hear it. And her mother testified about that because she regretted it. She was crying. She's like, she tried to tell me and I didn't want to hear it you know, because she was a Cosby fan too, and he had groomed them. So um, after she went to the police and it hit the media, then Gianna wants to call him. She's like, you give me his number. And Andrea doesn't want to do it at first. She said, you give me his number. I'm going to jump on a plane and I'm going because I want to know what he gave you. Because she was really worried about Andrea. And when she talks to him, he finally calls her back. And when she talks to him, she's like, what did you give her? Because she's like, she could have died. Like, and that's the whole thing that nobody really seems to think about is that these drugs how do you know a person is not going to have an allergic reaction to it? You don't. Um, you don't. You don't know what other drugs are in their system or if it will interact with it. You don't know. It's very dangerous to drug somebody without their knowledge or consent. And, um, and Cosby first said, he said it was a prescription that he would write it down on a piece of paper and send it to her. Of course, he never did. And then so by the time he says, he'll call back to check on Andrea in a few days. And by that time, she's been advised by her by the police and by her son-in-law, who's a detective, that she should tape the call because, you know, she should try to get something from, and it was legal in Canada. You only need one party to consent in Canada. So anyway, she did that. And that's when Cosby is, is trying to, uh, tells them that Andrea, he will pay for Andrea to go back to school, but she's got to get a 3.0. And of course they never accept that offer. So I found out they have these tapes that support their claims, claims and I start reporting it. And I start going on some national TV shows and, um, Cosby's people leak to the media that these tapes are that Andrea's mother tried to blackmail Cosby. And that's what this was all about. I mean, it basically lied, but the, but the media went with it and that's what they started reporting. Not what I was reporting about the fact that there were the tapes that proved she was telling the truth. And then the DA Bruce Castor starts telling local reporters, he could have me arrested. 
for these. And he kept calling them illegal wiretaps. Up to this day, he calls them illegal wiretaps and they were not illegal wiretaps. And he knew that in January, 2005, because he had his, even had his first assistant, Risa Furman, look into it. And she told him, no, it's legal in Canada. You need one party consent. But when his press release that Bruce Castor wrote in February saying he wasn't going to charge Cosby, still called them illegal wiretaps. And these, by the way, these illegal wiretaps were both used legally in both trials against Cosby. So if they were illegal, the judge wouldn't have allowed them in. So anyway, it's been just, it's amazing to me that 17, nearly 18 years later, we're still talking about this case. Um, Because, but, but then again, it's not because the media just really didn't want to jump on this story then and started piling on me. Too. Yeah. And I didn't care. I, I believed the women. I believed my yeah. reporting. I believed the stories. But, um, you know, I also learned about the phrase trading up because Cosby's people were not only calling my editors and me every day, trying to get me his attorney, trying to get me to back off the story and threatening to sue. Um, they were calling all of these bookers for the TV shows I was on, trying to get them not to have me on. And one of those bookers told me that that's where I learned the phrase trading up, which was given, given up one. It's really really rampant in the national media, giving up one story to get a better one. And ABC never really covered the accusations against Cosby back in 2005. Um, And this is when he was in the midst of, by the way, of touring the country and doing these town halls where he was basically lecturing in inner cities, lecturing black people about how to behave. And so, but the media wasn't allowed into them unless they were invited. So lo and behold, ABC, once Cosby's not charged, gets the first TV interview with Cosby, um, and they get an exclusive inside town hall at one of his town halls. It's on Nightline. It's everywhere. And the reporter doesn't even ask Cosby about the allegations. Okay. <laughs> right. no. no, no. I mean, it was very disillusioning to me. But I mean, I, you know, it is what it is. It happened. But um, I was just blown. Like normally what you see happen is like what happened with Epstein in 2018. Although that story was killed a lot along the way, too, by other journalists is that the, someone reports it and then other women come forward or also what happened with Cosby in 2014 you know when this story bubbled up again and then everybody jumps on it and then other victims come forward and it just keeps building and building and building and I was having that because there were other women coming forward there were 14 women accusing Cosby in 2005 and you know Tamara Green is California attorney heard an excerpt from Bruce Castor, who was the DA at the Times press conference, and just could tell this was before, this was after he, they'd interviewed Cosby, but before he'd made a decision about what to do. And she could just tell by his tone, like, he's not going to charge Bill Cosby anywhere. Yeah. And so she decided to come forward, like, because the same thing had happened to her 30 years ago. And, you know, she was because she was just like, no, they're not believing this woman. Maybe they'll believe it if I say this, if I tell them that he did the same thing to me. And um, I got an exclusive with her first. And then did a cover story with her after she first went to the police and first went to Andrew's attorneys and gave statements there. And that always is a big marker to me too. If someone is willing to stand up in a court of law under oath and say what happened to them and all of these women were willing to do that. So, uh, but it wasn't enough Cosby. I mean, I later found out that Castor didn't even, people didn't even interview most of the women that came forward back then. He just had already made his decision from the beginning that he wasn't going to charge Cosby. Yeah. And you, and you wonder what happened there, right? What, what was traded there? How did that, you know what I mean? Like there's yeah. so much that goes on. There's so much that you're saying that I can pick up and plop 
on all sorts of other stories. And it's mm-hmm. the same fucking thing, right? Like the, the trading up, the media working either for good in your respect or for evil in, in terms of all piling on the cover up. I've seen that the money brand reputation stuff outweighing the truth, mm-hmm. um, the picking of the prey, the, mm-hmm grooming of the victim and the family and a lot of other people, right? The donors and the, this, and I'll scratch your back. If you cover this up, um, all of that. And what is it that you think, I mean, I have, this is a billion dollar question, but what is it that you think you've seen it? We've seen it happen in all these stories where about people like psychologically automatically knee jerk reaction is to defend their hero. Yes. And like, that's a major disc. We saw it in Michael Jackson. We saw it in Cosby. Like, you don't know that person, but what is it about human psychology? And I I don't know if you have any guesses. I haven't figured it out where people go to that place of automatically saying, well, my Bill Cosby would never do that. Mm -hmm. These women are liars. They must've asked for it. They're whores. What do they want? They're in it for the money. I experienced that in my case and, and Larry Nassar wasn't, wasn't, you know, Bill Cosby, but in this little gymnastics bubble, he was the God, right? Right. So what is that? What do you think that is? Well, I, you know, I wrote a book, um, Chasing Cosby about the whole experience. And also I have a podcast based on the book. Yes. And I dealt, I really in the book, cause we didn't get into as much in the podcast. I, I delved into that because I wanted the book to be about more than just, this is what happened about try to understand how and why yeah. and I write about we, we're a celebrity worshiping country that, yep. you know, we, with the halo effect that we think that if someone is good in one area that, that, that they're automatically like, if they're a star athlete, like OJ Simpson, then how could they possibly murder their wife? Um, and the same thing with Bill Cosby. I mean, that you think we think we know these people. And I think that's the reason most people were able to believe that Jeffrey Epstein and Harvey Weinstein committed the crimes they did because nobody had ever heard of them before those crimes happened. But Cosby was a a household name. I mean, he was America's dad and there, he still has many fans to this day who still refuse to believe he's guilty. They still cling to that image of him. Um, You know, and it, it, and I also interviewed a former FBI profiler who uh, coined the term icon intimidation. And now you know, like how all of all of that plays into this icon being able to basically intimidate people into not believing any allegations against them. They put all this time and effort into their image being pristine. And, um, and there's got to be a power differential between them and the victim that all of these factors come into play that play into how they're able to get away with this and just pull the wool over people's eyes for so long. And also the, the worst thing though, is that the media is complicit. And, you know, I found out how many people knew for years that he was doing this. I mean, yeah. even the other comedians knew, um, Joe Rogan and I think Bill Maher, was it Bill Maher were on like, just like a year and a half ago before Rogan's podcast went to Spotify. And they were like, how long did you know? Oh, I knew since like the nineties, I knew since yeah. like the eighties. And then, um, you know, I have a lot of this in my book, um, his first known victim was from 1965 and she was a 17-year-old virgin, Sunny Wells, that, that met him through her mother who was an agent and she had known him for a couple of years at least. So many of these young girls had and people also forget how many of his victims were teenagers when he did this and I, 
actually started my own blog. It's called uh, Chasing Justice. I do it on Substack. And um, I, I just wrote a piece about all of his teenage victims because one of those teenage victims just won her civil lawsuit against him in California in June. Oh, he's, yeah, he's appealing it. Because I, I, I think a lot of these other cases, and even Nasser's case gets so much attention because the girls were teenagers. Yeah. And that adds, adds a whole other level of vulnerability to, it's just as bad when they do that to adult women. But when you're a teenager, I think there's definitely more sympathy for the victims. And I think that, you know, this I explore in the book too, sexual assault is just, because I was like, why is there this visceral distrust of sexual assault claims in the general public and in law enforcement? What is, why is that? And I explore that somewhat in there too, because that really plays into this. I mean, you know, Tamara Green, the, the California attorney who came forward in 2005, um, she got like, she'd had some things happen to her since the rapes and she got really raked through the coals by the media for them. Cause Cosby people dug into her past started leaking negative stuff about what things oh, yeah. that happened to her. It got to the point. It was so bad that tomorrow was doing this media blitz after she did my interview. And she just was like, start revealing stuff herself. Cause she's like, you know, just so you know, Dan Abrams, this happened too. you know, yeah. I interviewed sexual assault experts. I'm like, does any of this matter? And they're like, no, because it all happened afterward. And and, they, and she had told people along the way, which is something they look for. And they said, uh, even a prostitute can be raped. This has nothing to do with her credibility about whether okay. she's telling the truth about, about this particular issue. Yeah. And I said, they are, and they said rape shield, shield laws were prevented, were created to prevent this from happening in court. So now defense attorneys just go to the media with it and the media runs with it. Oh my gosh, that happened so much in our case. Um, and you know, I was eight years old. I had my daughter on this podcast just to, to, she was six at the time, just to demonstrate the mentality of, of what a child's brain is up to. Right. So you talk about the, the, the preying on and the vulnerability, like it's the worst when it comes, when it comes to, um, to kids, but yeah, I mean, I've come out for Michael Jackson, you know, Jerry Harris from the show cheer. Our, our firm has represented victims in both cases. I get death threats still to this day from Michael Jackson supporters saying, I want to kill you because you have come for my hero. You don't know me, you know, nothing about me, but the, the, the social media stuff, I'm going to kill you because you have come for my hero. I, I spoke out against Cosby um, when he was released from prison. I, I actually did an interview on people.com um, uh, against Cosby death threats. Wow. Yep. Wow. Yep. And so you dive into this chasing Cosby, the downfall of America's dad. Um, this is this is the exact kind of stuff we talk about on the show. And I'm so grateful that you are out there having these conversations through your podcast, chasing Cosby, your blog, and of course your writing and your work. Um, you have to have a lot of courage, right, to do what you do because the odds are stacked against people, <laughs> people like you and me um that have truth on our side but maybe not much else besides our voices right taking on some of these the biggest you know most well-funded entities in our country and celebrities in our country right it, you know and I honestly really didn't think about that at the time and I will always say and they tell you other Cosby victims have also had death threats um yep. and been threatened a lot it, it's horrifying um I haven't experienced that myself, thankfully, 
But for me, it was just about the truth. Like I once, I, and the more you push me into a corner and try to, t- and try to intimidate me, the more I'm going to push back because <laughs> I, be- I, I believed these women and I believed my reporting and hell with you. If you're going to try to, and believe me, Marty Singer, uh, Cosby was calling me every day, threatening to sue and just yelling at me. And he was sending threatening letters to my newspaper, but I will say you know, I don't think, and I, I, this is definitely the truth. There is no other news organization in the country that would have let me cover this case in 2005, the way the daily news did. And it's just the truth. My paper was just a paper that wouldn't back down to anybody. I if it had been the Philadelphia Inquirer, those stories would have been on page B3 and they would have been pro Cosby. I looked when I was writing my book, I went back and looked through the Associated Press stories from back then. They were all slanted toward Cosby and all started with like his defense and they trashed the women. And it, this happened over and over and over again. And yes, the Associated Press came out later in 2014 and got this records unsealed. But first they held on to an interview they did with him for two weeks where he's pressuring them not to release it. And it's, you can watch those videos online. I mean, this is the power a man like his, him has. Yep. And, you know, you got to remember that, you know, men are mostly running media organizations in general. And of course, they have a distrust of sexual assault allegations. Um, and corporations now own most of the media organizations. So even if the reporter and the editor want to do a story, now they've got to deal with a corporation that's like, no, he could sue us. Or, you know, in, in People Magazine's case in 2005, when I went to them, they were very, you know, they have a whole web of connections that one person's agent also represents other agents. And they, they were worried about being sued. They were worried about he was calling people racist for wanting to look into the story. And they were playing into that. So when I got on staff there, we finally did the story in 2006 after the lawsuit settled and they were still petrified. Um, and they made me write a story about, you know, all of his good deeds, all of Cosby's good deeds, a sidebar. And they didn't promote the story on the cover and they didn't um, put it on their, their weekly press release about all their exclusives. They just did this very low key media strategy because they were, act- uh, you know, uh, petrified he was going to sue yeah. and also about you know the other thing that goes on is the relationships with other celebrities you know one agent represents a bunch of other celebrities and you know kudos to the man because i said look if these women are brave enough to have their names and photos used in this story shouldn't we be brave enough to run it because that's what it is the true courage comes from the victims who like to who call themselves survivors now but still they're victims who are courageous enough to come forward, to go to the police, to be go public and tell people what was done to them. Because especially when it's someone like America's dad, like they are heroes. They really are. Because if they hadn't done that, you know, I'm still have concerns now that he's out that he will do this again, because I think, I think, you know, he pulled a stunt once he got out of prison I was horrified. I mean, my phone was ringing off the hook once he got released because that was a whole travesty of justice in and of itself. And that decision, yeah, you should. I wrote a piece on it for my blog about all the reasons why. I mean, that decision was not based on the law. I don't know what it was based on, but it was not based on the law. Nope, it wasn't. I did. I talked about that a lot too. Yeah, I wanted to get your your opinions on that. So, what was that day like for you? It was surreal because, you know, normally, as you know, being a lawyer, like when, and I I was always telling some of them this, look, even if he wins his appeal, which I thought might be on the issue of the 404B witnesses, like how many were the other women who were allowed to testify because Pennsylvania law is very murky on that and doesn't say how many is too many. And, you know, it was conceivable that they, they could have thrown some of that out, but not on the issue of whether this press release was an immunity agreement. And even then the remedy is a new trial. It's not without using that evidence. 
sense. It's not a get out of jail free card. I mean, (laughs) and and within hours and on on top of it all, you know, Andrew Wyatt, Cosby spokesman, I saw a recent video where he's quoted on that day saying, Nick, this guy from this crazy news organization called YC News called to tell me a week ago that the decision was coming. How did freaking Nick know? Right. And he writes for this shady news organization that I don't know who's funding it, but I have a strong suspicion it's someone either pro-Cosby or, or Cosby's behind it, because all they did really was trash Andrea Constan, the victim in it, repeatedly. Yep. Yep. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it was surreal for me. But I, after that, I was, it, a, few, a lot of people were having me write op-eds, which I did. I was doing a lot of interviews. So I started catching up on media a couple of few days later, and I see this interview with this TV reporter from CBS. I sat next to her at a couple of the hearings. She was really nice. And she starts talking about, and kudos to them for revealing this, um, that Cosby, Andrew Wyatt brings her into Cosby's house, says Cosby's agreed to be interviewed by you. She goes in, but no cameras. So she goes in and where does Andrew Wyatt take her? But up to Cosby's bedroom. (gasps) Cosby's lying in bed. (gasps) She's interviewing him from the doorway while he's lying in bed. <gasps> and I was just like, oh my God, he's been emboldened by this. Like if he had, would he have done the A to a male reporter? No. Uh-huh. And, you know, and this female reporter is beautiful too. Um, and of course they revealed it, kudos to them. But I, I was horrified, horrified. And what an awful position for that reporter to be in. You know, oh, boss were saying, get the interview, get the interview. It's an exclusive, yeah. but at what cost? Yep. And that's so psychologically typical of a predator to be that fucking narcissistic and above the law, right? And that's that's something common I see, um, even with the non-celebrity predators that 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 we sue. Wow, and they've got to keep taking greater and greater risks too to get that same charge. I mean, I've done stories on serial killers about that. And this was like here, I was like, he's been denied access to women basically for three years. Or and i.e. his prey. So I that's when I got very concerned. Like, is he going to do this? Again? He'll, he'll do this again. He'll try oh. because now he's like he like he couldn't beat the system because he actually got a DA in Kevin Steele that he couldn't control. Yes, for whatever reason he could control Bruce Castor. I do know like Bruce Castor had just run for governor and lost in the primary the previous April. I mean, and there I know Andrea's lawyer's theory was that Castor was protecting Cosby because he didn't want a alienate Dr. Huxtable fans if he ran for office again and b I wonder if it wasn't to get campaign donations because Pennsylvania is one of the states where individuals can donate as much as they want to a candidate which is obscene like Castor himself had received donations from a former Reagan transportation official who would gotten a DUI that his office prosecuted and was leaning on he gave him like three hundred thousand dollars Jesus yeah and it was legal in PA it's legal so could even think it, oh, Cosby, you know, and actually Cosby's, um, attorney, one of his attorneys did hold a fundraiser for Castor well, in the for, following year. So conversation for another time is how backwards Pennsylvania law is in P- Pennsylvania politics, because I've got, a, I could do 20 shows on that, but shout out to Kevin Steele. We sit on a board together and I, I admire him tremendously and Kristen Fedden who worked so hard. Yep. Um, on that case, she's a, a colleague and friend of mine also, but, um, you know, their, their diligence and character really, really shown through. Unfortunately, this man is free <laughs> and doing God knows what. Um, 
Well, let me say too, and Lisa, the person who reopened the case in July, 2015, the DA at the time was Risa Furman. Okay. okay. And Kevin was the first assistant. Risa had been Castor's first assistant back in January, 2005. So this is why this whole, you know, claim that this press release was an immunity agreement doesn't even add up for another reason in which I explore in that piece I told you I wrote, because he claimed, he was claiming to her that, don't you remember I had this immunity agreement? It was a press release, Risa, and there were emails to this effect. And she's like, no, like, why would she have reopened the case if Cosby had been given immunity for her from her office back in 2005? And first of all, in Pennsylvania, anyway, immunity agreements have to be signed off on by a judge. You know, a, a press release, it was a press release. It wasn't an immunity agreement. He did not have the power. If so, he broke the law. But he claimed when he was, he testified about this after Cosby was arrested for seven hours that as the sovereign of, this is where he called himself the sovereign of Montgomery County, he didn't have to go to a judge to get authority to give him this immunity agreement. And right. what was even more outrageous is he claimed that Risa okayed it and that so did Andrea's attorneys. And they got up and testified like, no, this is not true. We didn't even know that you had decided not to charge him. He didn't even have the courtesy to let them know. They found out when the media showed up on their doorstep. And then they're desperately trying to track Andrea down so she can be in a safe space because her house has been surrounded by press for weeks because the press just decided to release her name and photo without her consent. And all of a sudden that's everywhere. Um, We never did at the Daily News until we had her permission um, after she filed her civil suit. Because at that point it was like, why withhold it? It's everywhere. Yeah. So they, you know, when they filed the civil suit, they used her name and they could have filed as a Jane Doe, but still we wouldn't have done it had we not had their permission, even though it was everywhere. So, um, yeah, but that's the whole thing. Risa Furman, why would she have reopened this case if she knew there was an immunity agreement and there was no immunity agreement, even the judge at the time was grilling Castor about it. He's like, Bruce, you know how this goes. You have to get it signed off on by a judge. You write it on a piece of paper, throw it in a freaking drawer or something, but you do it. And the only proof that this was a, an immunity agreement was Castor's word. Yeah. I still had that press release. Luckily, I kept all of my files <laughs> from back then when I left the Daily News. Um, so I had all of that. And it was just mind blowing. Like, I don't know if he concoct, you know, concocted it back then or I think he thought it was done. This case was over. And then yeah. when it exploded again in 2014, he was at first, Castor was at first doing interviews saying, oh, I wish I could have charged him back then. And I just didn't have enough evidence. Yeah. And then yeah. after the case reopened, it became, oh no, there was an immunity agreement. Somehow he came up with this press release was an immunity agreement. It was so laughable that I couldn't even believe that the PA Supreme Court agreed to hear the arguments on it. And then when I watched the oral arguments in December of 2020, wait, when was he released? 2021, we're in 2022. So it would have been December of 2020. When I was watching it, I was just horrified because the chief judge asked, you know, just walked, asked some, it was on YouTube because of the pandemic. And, you know, he asked a question. He was, they were very aggressive questioning the prosecutors but not really so much doing that to Cosby's attorneys and the one, one point the chief justice asked a question of the prosecutor and then walked away and turned his camera off for 10 minutes while she was answering it yep so it's pretty clear they weren't going to rule in his favor but again I thought it would be on the on the 404b witness issue not this ridiculous issue and even then why do you how do you get a get out of jail free card i'm corresponding right now with a guy i've been talking to for 22 years who they are convinced is innocent he's finally probably going to be freed but it's taken 20 years you don't just get out of jail the same day carpet with 
but right it's it is completely laughable and I am a big like I said shit talker about um the politics of the state of Pennsylvania and what I've learned through my work and trying to extend statutes of limitations and trying to revive statutes of limitations everybody can be bought um it's just a matter of you know what the price is going to be um and it's it's a state that tends to be very pro perpetrator um and pro wealthy entity and and um and not pro victim yeah that's that's accurate it's a disgrace um I'm like on the edge of my seat. This is the best inside <laughs> scoop I've ever gotten um, about anything. But let's let's switch gears a little bit. Um, you wrote a piece for People.com about Brittany Menard. And for those of you that don't re- recall that name, um, she was the 29-year-old terminally ill woman who became the face of the controversial right to die movement before she ended her life November 1st of 2014. And your interview, you know, sort of shattered, it, it broke the web, right? It, 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 you know, it had over 16 million views probably even more than that by now and continues to be the biggest story that people.com has ever done. Um, How did you get involved in that? How did you get that interview? What was that experience like? Um, What can you share with us about that? Sure. Um, In January of that year, I I was interested in, there was a case of Barbara Mancini. She was a Philadelphia nurse who had given her, um, who was arrested and charged with assisted suicide for handing a bottle of morphine to her dying terminally ill father, who was like 90 some years old. And it was a big explosive case. And and she ended up having compassion and choices, this right to die group, um, help her with her legal costs because her legal bills were like a hundred thousand dollars. And this is a woman who was not trying to let her father kill himself she was just he was in pain and he needed the medication and she gave it to him and the hospice people walked in at that point and called the police it was horrible but now um so I started dealing with them to see if she would talk and she ended up wanting to do 60 minutes and not us so people said no not not interested um she did eventually get the charges dropped against her which was great Mm -hmm. so I stayed in touch with the spokesperson and he pitched me a couple of stories I'd take it to my editors and they'd say no we're not interested and he pitched me another one and then in early October, 2014, I, I still have these emails. He's like, how would you like to do a story about a 29 year old terminally, terminally a woman who's going to end her own life? You know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh my God. So it was Brittany Menard. And, um, and now let me tell you, this was also the same time the Cosby scandal, this became around the same time the Cosby scandal blew up again, because oh, it was quiet for eight years. Amazing. It was like in October, 2014, <laughs> that this viral video video went viral of Hannibal versus routine. And so that's exploding. And this happens. And I'm like, but he wanted to get it in the magazine. I think he pitched it on like a Thursday. We couldn't get it in the magazine because they were releasing a video from her the following week. So we ended up deciding we'll get it on people.com. Yeah. And also it was a video. How do you do that in the pages of the magazine? Yeah. I, I had to get my own. I said, you know, I need my own interview with her. So I, I did, I interviewed her that Friday um, for 20, they, they keep giving me 20 minutes. Um, but again, this is a woman in the last few months, weeks of her life. So I understood. Mm-hmm. And also I, what the information they give me said that she had picked a, 
I can't remember if it said she had picked a date, but anyway, I asked her if she had picked a date in that interview. I said, if you picked a date to end your life? And she said, yes, November 1st, because, you know, I don't want to live long enough to see my 30th birthday. It's just too sad. My husband and I were trying to have a family when we found out I had this malignant brain tumor and it's just too sad. And looking back, I, I think, and I put that in my story, actually, that I had a date and I, I think that was what also what helped it explode, that there was an actual date instead of, oh, I'm going to do it at some point in the future. No, I'm doing it November 1st. Of course, the beauty of this, this movement and this, this law in, in Oregon and that is now elsewhere is if you change your mind, you change your mind. Nothing says you have to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I honestly didn't realize there were states. Like I've always felt a little weird about the Dr. Kevorkian part of it simply because you know, there's room for someone to be manipulated or whatever, but this is a person who's terminally making their own decision. And I'd seen family members and friends die of cancer. I know how horrific it is. I mean, there was no chance this woman was going to survive this, no chance. And the way you die from a glioblastoma is horrific. And she, she had read that she, she had already tried one surgery um, it got rid of her initial tumor, but then it grew back even bigger and it was a glioblastoma. So she knew her number was up. There were no treatments. There was nothing. And, um, and she knew that if she would end up having seizures and then would end up being trapped within it because she was young and healthy, she could end up being trapped within her own body for months. And that was not something that appealed to Brittany Menard. She's like, I don't want to die like that. Um, so she f- researched and found out Oregon had a death with dignity law, which allows a terminally ill person to make that decision themselves. They've got to go to a doctor first and they have to have like less than six months to live. There's a whole process, um, a psychiatric evaluation, all that. But she and her family had to pick up and move to Oregon Mm -hmm. to do it. She was living near San Francisco at the time. And she just recognized that not everybody has the finances to do that. You know, they can't just pick up and move to a state that allows it. She and her husband went and her mom and her stepfather stayed with them for a while too, but not everybody can do that and then not work and all of these other things. So she really wanted to make an impact and do something to help get other states have this same law. And so she did this video for them and I did the story and yet it exploded. I think that one had like a million views by the end of the day. And, and then we decided to do it as a story for the magazine, a potential cover, but we needed I needed to interview Brittany again. I also needed to interview her, her mother and her husband, and we needed a photo. And, you know, sheer, this is this woman was trying to spend as much time with the rest of the, the, for the last four weeks of her life with her family. Yeah. So she finally agreed to give us an hour, um, the following weekend, just for the photo. And I couldn't even go because I needed to do the interviews. I got another 20 minute phone interview with her. And then I, I, everything I ended up having to do by phone because there was just no time I yeah. outside Philly to get there and do these interviews and yeah. without intruding on the last weeks of this woman's life. So, um, and the photo shoot was very emotional because she was on all these steroids mm. to, for the glioblastoma. Her face was really she gained all this weight in her face and everything. And, and, and it was just very, here you are going to be on the cover of People magazine. And, and it was very upsetting to her too, because it's not how she even, she didn't even recognize herself when she looked at it. They really wanted us to use photos of her before the steroids and all that. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, so she started, was very emotional during the shoot. And, you know, she it's just because she didn't even recognize herself anymore because of what the drugs had done to her body, this so it was, I, I did more stories over the next course of the next few weeks. And again, in the middle of that, the Cosby case exploded again and is gaining steam. And now more and more women are coming forward. And then on November 1st, she did, you know, enter life, like she said, and I did a story about that. And it was a really odd situation because 
there was like this shutdown. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know where she, if she had done it, if she hadn't, I'm sitting at home on Sunday and I'd started writing an advance open in case she did. And then I get this phone call at home from a friend of her family saying, I haven't seen you write anything. Brittany died yesterday. Did you know? I'm like, no, what? And he sends me a screenshot of her final post and he sends me all this and I'm calling capacity and choices to confirm. They can't even get it confirmed. But I guess she had put a private Facebook post out like the one he'd sent me. So word was starting to spread and we wanted to get the family's blessing before we posted it. But then it started popping up on local papers because friends were saying, oh, we posting on their sites about her dying. And so ended up finally running it. And that's the one that got like 16 million downloads and became, that's when people was part of Time Inc. And and Time Inc. included Sports Illustrated. Yeah. And, and it was, it, it got them, it was the most downloaded story ever in the history of Time Inc. Um, prior to that, it had been LeBron James going back <laughs> to <laughs> the Cavaliers in Cleveland, but this, oh, this became that. It was like 16 million. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, wow. and the more I thought about it, I mean, I, again, you try not to have, and they had me write like a first person piece about what this was like and what I learned from her. And a lot of what I learned is I didn't know there were states where you could make this decision yourself. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, this is when I really don't get the other side of the argument at all, because I've seen people die of cancer. It's horrible. And you don't know when it's going to happen. And this allows you to say goodbye to your loved ones to sort of have control of it. Brittany, when she did take it, her mom and her stepfather and her husband were all there. I think her best friend was too. She got to say her goodbyes. She drank this. It's like barbiturates. She puts in a drink and she went to sleep. And, you know, I've cancer is a horrible way to die, especially brain Mm -hmm. cancer. Mm -hmm. So, oh my gosh. Wow. That's, that's intense. You've seen, you've seen humanity at all, all from all different language, all different angles. Um, the best, the worst complicated, the painful, the, the happy stuff, I'm sure. What are you working on now, Nikki? I, <laughs> I can talk to you for weeks. What are you ta- working on now? What should we look for coming from you? Well, my second book that I co-authored with the subjects of the book, which also has to do with uh, sexual assault, Victim F, came out last June. And that's another one I would encourage people to read because this is another sexual assault one where this woman was kidnapped from her boyfriend's bed, um, held for two days and raped. And her boyfriend, the police questioned her boyfriend for 18 hours and thought he was lying and had killed her. And when she was released, um, they thought the police held a press conference and called the whole thing a hoax. And Denise was called... Um, the real life gone girl and headlines across the world. They accuse them of making up the whole thing, even though these are both people who were like physical therapists with advanced degrees who worked with the most damage to people like stroke and traumatic brain injury victims and had nothing in their past to indicate they would make up something like this. But the media again ran with it and they were just really skewered in all over the country. And the police were and the feds were investigating them for lying. And it wasn't if it hadn't been for another uh, cop going above and beyond in her duties and investigating it, that one of the perpetrators was caught a few months later. And that helped, you know, restore their reputation, but in a way, not really. And they ended up filing a lawsuit against the police that they won and settled for $2.5 million. But, you know, there are so many people that catch the initial media coverage that call you a hoaxer, but they don't catch the follow-up press conference where it comes out that, yes, they were telling the truth. And this is one of the guys who did it. And what's even worse is there were at least three perpetrators involved and the police just decided in the FBI, like, no, there was only one, that's it. So the accomplices are still out there. So it's, it's another 
outrageous case. And again, of course, sexual assault, you know, that, that adds to the, on a whole other level to this. But what was done to Aaron was, was really bad as well. I mean, he was held in question for 18 hours and the, the cops are basically trying to browbeat him into admitting that he killed her. And how many, how many, like they're a middle-class family, a couple who had the resources to hire lawyers to fight all this. Um, but how many people can't, how many people who don't have the resources to fight this get Con, you know, coerced into confessing to something they didn't do when this yeah. is Vallejo, California, which has a lot of issues. So, um, yeah, and I'm working on a couple other books that I can't talk about yet. <laughs> but <laughs> okay, yeah. stay tuned. <laughs> How can my incredible, amazing listeners find you? Oh, you could go to my website. Um, it's n i c k i nikki egan dot com or nicole egan dot com, and on there I have a I started up a Substack like blog where I just write whenever I feel like it. It's uh, because I, I don't have a lot of time to do it, but um, so that's on there as well. It's called chasing justice. So I just kind of weigh in when I feel strongly about it. And it also gave me, I wanted to be able to kind of continue write writing about the Cosby case, but in more of an opinion way, because now yeah. that I've put my personal opinion out there in the book and other places, I don't feel like I can cover it as a new story, but I wanted yeah. to still be able to write. And it's actually way more, fun writing opinion pieces than it is <laughs> writing news stories because <laughs> you really get to do analysis you know yeah. and, and everything so that's on there as well and awesome. keep up with what I'm up to and things like that I love it well I'll be hitting refresh all day long just like I do on people.com <laughs> my office don't tell anybody um Nikki you are such a badass thank you on behalf of all survivors and victims of crimes out there for having a bold brave voice um you know as we said the media can can be a double-edged sword but people like you um are the ones that are changing and saving lives every day so thank you so much for doing the work you're doing and we're going to follow you we can't wait to see what's coming next thank you so much for being here for listening to Bar Fights with attorney Sarah Klein, taking on issues that matter. Please check out our website at barfightspodcast.com, Instagram at barfightspodcast, or Twitter at barfights underscore pod for the latest show updates and archives.